0: hi and welcome back to the mission-minded podcast i'm jim
1: and i'm mitch it's good to be back
0: jim wow we just wrapped up a great interview with glenn chapman
1: we did he's uh yeah got a great story he's a pastor right yep seminary professor right powered parachute pilot
0: yep say that five times fast well maybe not (laughs) maybe not yeah (laughs) But Lots yeah, that's that's the connection to iTech. Mm-hmm. He was um, a guy working in remote villages in the Congo and using a bicycle, canoe, getting into these places, just very difficult terrain and trying to find a new solution. Right. And so got connected through Steve Saint. Yep, back um, in 2008, I think you said it was. Yep. And uh, Troy on our team was able to train him in a powered parachute. Mm-hmm. Have you ever flown in a powered parachute, Mitch? I have not.
1: Although he says it's not too risky. So maybe one day I'll get up in one of those.
0: Yeah. And, and for those who might not be aware, a powered parachute is is basically this small three-wheeled rig, usually two-seaters. Um, maybe they got a one-seater. I don't know. But it's got a big propeller in the back and the wing is the parachute. Right. I guess if you have an engine failure, you, you've you already got a parachute, you're yeah. good.
1: Just glide back down.
0: Yeah, and so we actually have had some guys that have just the, the backpack. I think it's called a powered paramotor right. at iTech too. Kind of different ways to approach this thing. Mm-hmm. Does that have any interest for you at all? I mean, maybe getting to and from work or?
1: Uh, I have a mild fear of flying, so. Okay. if i can avoid not getting in the air i will
0: okay okay well maybe if you were having to go through some difficult terrain every day yeah you saw. instead of trekking through the mud and
1: potentially damaging equipment and things i'm bringing in yeah that would be a good alternative
0: yeah absolutely well before we get started i want to remind everybody that we really appreciate if you were to like to comment to subscribe to the podcast it helps us get the word out about these stories and, and try to get the message to a, a broader audience. So I appreciate if you take the time to do that. Mitch, anything else before we get started? I think we just jump right in. Enjoy, guys.
2: Welcome to Mission Minded, the podcast where we explore outside-the-box thinking in carrying out Christ's Great Commission. On this week's episode, we are joined by missionary Glenn Chapman. our sponsor for today's podcast is dignity roasters coffee locally roasted and packaged by the Distressed to fuel each day dignity roasters was born through a passion to partner with the distressed and the desire of bringing the universally loved beverage of coffee to your hands to order your own coffee or to learn more about dignity roasters visit their website at dignityroasters.com now here's our host jim tingler and mitch deans
0: glenn thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today
3: an honor for me to be with you
0: and hey Glenn you are at the tail end of your missionary journey uh, but can you share maybe a little bit some of the the highlights of what that that journey was all about maybe some of the places you've worked and and how you were able to get there
3: okay um, uh, I think it was natural for me to fall into missions uh, particularly in Congo, because I'm a missionary kid, so my parents are missionaries uh, in that same context, and uh, my wife is actually third-generation missionary uh, in that same Congo context as well. Uh, and so, uh, going back to Congo as missionaries was was pretty natural uh, for us, but it wasn't a direct route. I mean, we we took kind of a circuitous route to. Uh, to get there, um, my wife—we knew each other in, in high school. Our parents were both missionaries with the same uh, organization, and uh, I went back to college uh, preparing for ministry because that's what people advised me to do. Uh, but it wasn't really my calling. It wasn't the calling that I had had. It was the calling that other people told me that that I should do. And so I started college, thinking that I was preparing for for missions, for ministry. Uh, but uh, uh, I got to to doubt and to wonder, you know, well maybe there were other things in life besides missions. Uh, and so I uh, went to the army, the U.S. Army, for six years, and uh, and that was a a good, a real good fit. Uh, for me, because you, the Army takes people from all different cultures and makes them into one new culture. And, uh, and I felt like I had a sense of belonging uh, in, in the Army. Then after about five years, I wondered, okay, uh, do I stay in the military, be a chaplain, or, or do I uh, get out and, and go into missions? Um, but one thing that the Army taught me was that uh, my faith was something that i wanted to live for myself it wasn't the faith of my fathers my family my ancestors but it was the faith that i wanted for myself Uh, because prior to that i'd been in a christian environment all along and with the army i was in a secular environment and i could figure out who i was myself and what i wanted and i wanted to be a christian and i wanted to serve the lord and the question was how i was going to serve and uh, while I felt like I was doing well in the Army, um, I felt like I could best serve the Lord by being in missions, by being in, in cross-cultural missions. So I got out of the Army and got, had the GI Bill, the old Vietnam era GI Bill, and went to seminary. Uh, and then after seminary, then I got uh, commissioned and appointed to go, to go back to Congo, which is where I wanted to be. At that time, it was Zaire. Uh, but back to Congo
0: and that was that was with a, a mission organization
3: Yes, that was with the international ministries the uh, American Baptist uh, denomination their missions wing is called international ministry great and, and we've been in our organization has been in Congo since uh, the 1880s actually so over a hundred years in Congo
0: Wow yep. And uh, appreciate your service as well, in uh, the yeah, army. thanks. Uh huh. So, so, what years? What years were that? Was that span the six years that you were involved?
3: So, I, I was in the army from '78 to let's see, I got out in '83.
0: Okay. Yeah. And then, so heading back overseas, that would uh. So
3: I went to seminary then for three years, 83 to 86. And then we went back out in 86, uh, June of 86. Yeah. And I I started out doing um, theological education by extension. So I was in the villages training lay leaders, uh, working with the the lay leaders rather than the pastoral leadership. Hmm. That's kind of what I started out doing
1: yeah and how long did you um, how long were you serving in the Congo for
3: so I was we were there our first year we were there just for a year yeah and then uh, and then we came back to the states then we got sent to France for language study and then in 87 then we got sent out as uh, official missionaries. I think that first year, 86 to 87, was a trial period. It was a, It was a year to see how we did uh, and to see if we could fit into the missions uh, organization and then then the language study. And then we got sent back in 87, and we mainly did evangelism and uh, leadership training in a new area of the country that had been uh, just recently evangelized, so raising up the, the laity to... To serve.
0: And was that a, a more remote part of the country?
3: Yeah, we lived in the city because we had small children. We lived in the city on, on a missions compound and then I would take trips out and spend three, four weeks at a time out in a, a, rural, in a rural area.
0: Now, um, desc- did desc- that for, for a few years. Describe rural. What, what does rural look like in that context? So,
3: Rural would be outside of the city where there is no power, no city water, and you're living in the villages. Mm-hmm. And uh the infrastructure would be real poor, so you'd be getting around by bicycle or by hiking, uh, that sort of thing.
1: I could imagine that would be a, a challenge as as a missionary, um in those remote areas with the transportation and were there yeah, were there yeah. other challenges other than transportation that you faced in the field?
3: Um, I think uh, health was always a concern, but we always stayed uh, healthy. Um, you know the real challenge these days in, in in actual living now the real challenge is is urban living urban. Uh, rather than rural. Hmm. Rural things kind of stay the same and are predictable and you know where your water source is and uh, you know how to get around. But in the city, things are changing all the time and uh, the population is is increasing so fast that just getting around the city right now, the African cities are just so uh, clogged with with traffic that you can't get around uh, at all anymore. Technology is changing pretty fast and, and so the the real the real changes are in the are in the urban areas right now whereas rural is pretty uh, predictable and, and consistent and uh, I don't know peaceful right now
0: <laughs> compared to the city. Well, Glenn, that's one so, of the uh, ways that that we got yeah. connected was through transportation and specifically well, trying to solve some problems in that yes. world. And that goes uh, back to Steve Saint, right?
3: Okay. Yeah. So I was doing uh, evangelism in a rural context. And by this time, our family had moved out. We were out of the city. We were in a rural compound, uh, like what used to be called a mission station, a church center. And then I'd go from there to do evangelism out along the rivers or across the roads by bicycle. And uh, I started using audiovisual. Uh, because that really drew the crowds. So I travel out into the villages with the Jesus film, but to show the Jesus film, then I needed a generator. I needed a projector. I needed my conductors, my VCR, my computer and so on. And so we were trying to transport the equipment on the back of a bicycle or having people carry the stuff. And, uh, that was really hard on, on the equipment. And, um, uh, people were always eager to help carry the equipment out to the villages to project. But once you projected to try to come back, you would never find people that were willing to, to carry the stuff back. You know, they'd seen their movies, and, uh, and it was hard to get people back. So it, it was a real challenge to, to transport the audiovisual equipment. So I thought about using an ultralight uh, to get the equipment in and out of the villages. And so I went to Oshkosh Airshow to learn about ultralights, and that's where I ran into Steve Saint, who was promoting his book, uh, The End of the Spear*. And he told me about their experience in South America using a powered parachute. They were just experimenting with using powered parachutes. And so he invited me to iTech to get training in powered parachute. And that's when, uh, about the same time he had met uh, Troy, and, uh, and, and Troy was an experienced pilot and and got Troy to come and come to iTech to, to train me So that's how my connection started with uh, with iTech.
0: So you're using uh, bicycle canoe whatever thing you know whatever you can use to get into those places yes and then you're exploring okay we got to find a better way to do this this isn't working And so you come across this, powered parachute is a possibility and uh this is itech probably what 15 years ago or so this was 2008 okay so the powered parachute you got trained here in that and were you able to take that back and and use that in the remote villages
3: so I came to iTech and uh, Troy wasn't living in the area either, so Troy and I both arrived. And there was a machine that had been uh, that was there at iTech that uh, that I was able to to purchase. And so um, uh, Troy tested out the machine and then put me in the in the machine. I had my first two solo flights there uh, there at iTech. Uh, and then I loaded up the machine in a U-Haul and drove clear across country because I was living in California and uh, caught up with some powered parachute pilots in, in California and uh, and did a few more flights in California before my furlough ended and uh, then put the uh, powered parachute in a container and didn't even have to break it down, didn't even have to take it apart. It fit right into one of these... Uh, these shipping containers and shipped it to Congo uh, and got it up to where we lived at Kikongo in the interior and uh, took it out of the container and, uh, and set it up and got the rest of my experience uh, over there.
0: Wow. That's awesome. I just wanted to clarify. So for those who might not know, uh, Troy is, is on the iTech team. Uh, At that time he was traveling down, I believe just to, to get you up to speed, right, Glenn? I think he was That's living correct. in St. Louis at the yeah. time. Yeah. So he he came down and joined the iTech team and worked with the Maverick Project and, and right. still working with iTech and what we now call mission transportation. And okay. so that is trying to solve transportation issues in remote areas using tools you might ne- not necessarily think of. And they're doing a lot of testing with UAVs uh, now. Yes. And uh, using uh-huh. that as a potential for transportation of, yeah. you know, small objects and who knows where it's going to go. But just wanted to uh-huh. clarify for the listeners who might not. Steve Saint's one they can probably connect the dots on, but Troy, uh, he's been around iTech for a long time. He's our chief test pilot, uh, all things aviation. But he did join the iTech team and has been here uh, now since, I think, 2009. Maybe right Uh out in 2008.
3: Yeah. I think I was the first person that he uh, trained at Mm iTech. But the the powered parachute has turned out to be just an amazing tool for evangelism Mm -hmm. uh, because it doesn't need special gasoline. It just uses regular gasoline, and I can take off. All I need is 100 yards to take off, so a soccer field uh, will work. And so any decent village is going to have a soccer field. Um, and uh, the, the machine that I had then um, took could, could take a pilot and then the back seat I used for carrying my equipment. So I could put in a, a generator, a Honda generator and, and uh, my computer and projector and everything I needed to project and take off right in front of my house and then fly to these villages and land on a soccer field. And then uh, project uh, at night and then when I was done uh, hopefully I had enough room to to be able to take off on Um, so you know you had to really watch the wind and watch your angles and whether you're going kitty-corner or sometimes sideways all depended upon uh, how the wind was uh, that morning (laughs) it was a it was a pretty technical to, to set it all up but an amazing, amazing machine for that context in missions.
0: And, and describe a powered parachute for those who might not have seen one before. Okay.
3: So a powered parachute is a, a cart, um, usually a tricycle cart, that has a, a, an engine on the back with a propeller. And uh, mine was 65 horsepower Rotax engine, kind of engine that they'd use on snowmobiles. Uh, In other contexts and then the wing is just a parachute and so uh, as you go forward the parachute comes up over the cart and then only at 26 miles an hour really slow uh, you can get off the ground Uh, so you don't need a whole lot of space to get up to to a high speed Uh, the trick was just to make sure that the parachute was deployed properly uh, above you and that it was stable and then once it was stable, uh, you go to full power and you're you're off the ground uh, traveling at a, a low speed, you know, 26 miles an hour. But 26 miles an hour, you know, across the valleys, that's uh, that's all you need. Mm-hmm.
0: So you're basically a small little uh, trike vehicle with a, a large propeller on the back and the uh-huh. parachute acts as a wing. So it just once that's you correct. get going forward, it, it gets you enough lift and you take off. Yeah.
3: So you have two controls actually. You have your power, more power and you go up and less power you come down and then steering. So you have uh, uh, ropes that are uh, attached to the trailing edge of the parachute and you pull on the ropes on either side and you uh, apply drag to the parachute. So drag to the left and you turn left, drag to the right and you turn right. So it's only, only really two controls. Um, but you had to be careful when you fly. You didn't want to have too much wind. You couldn't. You had to make sure you're 100% sure that there wasn't going to be any storm around. Um, you know, in a tropical context, these storms can blow up uh, pretty quickly. So the the main thing was just being aware of your of, of the weather as you were flying. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I'm I'm sure Glenn uh, flying in this para parachute into some of the villages would have brought a crowd. Um, do you have any? Uh,
3: <laughs> That really drew the crowd. Yeah. You know, people would come from villages around. Or usually I had announced beforehand what village I was going to. Right. So all the villages around would, would come. Um, so you really had a double header when you got to a village because it was an air show and then a video at night. So everybody wanted to come for both the air show of the airplane landing mm-hmm. uh, as well as the projecting at, at night. So, yeah, it was an exciting time that, that really drew Uh, drew the crowds yeah
1: and you obviously got to visit more villages than what you would have um without it um do you have some testimony that you could share a specific story or or something um that really stuck out to you in your ministry um, taking the jesus film to the villages
3: uh you know we use the jesus film which uh is translated into their own language Mm -hmm. um and so they could hear Jesus talking in their own language. And um, in Africa now, there's a kind of a, a movement that says that they need to get their own African messiahs, their own African prophets. Mm-hmm. But here was Jesus talking to them in their own language. And, 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 and you, can, you jump from that and say, okay, Jesus came for the whole world. Uh, And he didn't just come for one particular race or one particular tribe. But here's Jesus talking to you in in your own language. And people would say all the time that, oh, these Bible stories that we had heard, that the pastors were preaching about, we got to see uh, for ourselves. We got to really see it it happen for ourselves. So um, there was, uh, it was just made a big impression on the people taking, being able to take the Jesus film uh, to those areas. And using the flying machine, too, um, in the African culture, sorcerers use flight. They fly on broomsticks, interestingly. They fly in peanut shells. They have traditions, oral traditions, of how the sorcerers fly but they usually Mm -hmm. fly at night, and they usually fly for some reason that's not uh, good for the community. It's to to cause destruction. And so I could look to the people and say, look at, I'm flying, but I'm not flying at night. I'm flying in the daylight. Everybody sees me. You all see this flying machine, and any question you have about the flying machine, I will answer I'll answer it, and you know me, and you've seen that I have come to bring good news
4: mm-hmm.
3: and not bad news. Sorcerer comes to bring destruction, comes to bring disease, some 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 malefic uh, reason. Mm. But what, when I come, I come to bring good news, and I tell you about Jesus, who is the prophet for for the whole world, mm. uh, and I can bring you. Uh, News of of happiness, of peace, and and not of destruction. And I'm not here secretively. I'm here for everybody to see, and everything that I say is is open for everybody to to, to hear. Uh, So it was a big uh, big difference between my going to the village in my daytime flying machine that was visible to all compared to the sorcerers who would go at night, uh, kind of secretively to, to do destruction. So that was kind of a fun way to bring the contrast between uh, the one who brings good news and the one who brings uh, uh, news of destruction. That's awesome.
0: Did you see yourself as a missionary pilot when you started this journey?
3: You know, uh, I'd I'd always dreamed about being a pilot. In fact, in the military, you know, I, I applied for... Uh, helicopter school I really wanted to be a, to be a pilot uh, but I thought that by going into missions I wouldn't have I would no longer have the chance of being a pilot you now I thought about mission aviation fellowship as well um, MAF, um, which is a really good organization that has, has served us uh, out there I thought of being an MAF pilot but I thought that by becoming by going to seminary I lost my chance of, of becoming a pilot but by flying PPCs, uh, you get to be a pilot and a, a missionary, uh, you know, and a pastor at, at the same time. So I, uh, it was it was an amazing experience, an amazing run uh, to be able to do missions with a with a powered parachute. <clears throat> Steve good. Saint really yeah. scared me in the right direction uh, <laughs> wow. with that because I'd been looking at. Uh, um smaller ultralights fixed wing ultralights and and he told me about the value of of having a, a flexible wing of having the powered parachute and that's just ideal for the for our context for our rural context because um you're you're under a a parachute so if you have engine trouble the parachute's going to bring you down anyway mm-hmm. and you aren't going mm-hmm that fast, the the impact isn't going to kill you. Um, So um, it was ideal for our context where most of the 90% of the land is is the grassland. You're only over a forest, maybe 10% of the time, and over rivers. And so you just go up to a higher elevation when you go over forests and rivers. But most of the time was over the grassland. And if you have an engine out, you're going to come right down uh, in, in the grass so it felt like a safe context uh, for for flying, um, and and we've mentioned that I've just ended my missionary career, uh, or that chapter of of missions, and I donated the machine to the national museum in Congo in Kinshasa, and I told them that I was a pioneer and had opened up this method of of flight that they could now imitate, that they could now uh, follow. That I prepare the way for them and and shown them that that technology works uh, for rural Africa. It's to, uh, to them now to follow through uh, with what I've what I've started. So hopefully the young people can dream about flying as well uh, in Congo.
0: That's great. How many flights did you do while you were over there? Just curious.
3: Well. I clocked uh, over 500 landings. Okay. <laughs> so um, a landing is different from flights to to villages. Uh, maybe a couple dozen trips to to villages um, during the the time. This last term, uh, I didn't make trips to villages. I flew it, but I I I was involved so much in. Um, uh, seminary education that I wasn't able to spend a whole lot of time feeling comfortable with the machine to be able to fly into villages. Boy, you need to be on the top of your game technically to, to know, uh, to, to be skilled in flying and to, to know your machine is, is in top order. And, um, uh, I was involved so much in, in teaching that I wasn't able to feel, uh, comfortable about taking the machine to villages this last, uh, last three years. My nice. ministry really evolved. So I started in training lay leaders to training pastors to uh, seminary training to, to, to university training pastors. So um, I, I was, this last term, I was really involved mostly with academics and ad- administration and wasn't able to get out in evangelism as much as I had previously so it was like my prior years were training in evangelism uh, making disciples and then in my last years it was actually raising up the leadership to uh, to be involved in in leading the church
1: what is the context um, of christianity in the congo and are there what are the challenges i guess that the church is facing in the congo currently
3: yeah you know uh, most of the schools in congo would be either catholic or protestant mm-hmm. so 80% of the people would claim to be catholic or protestant but there's a lot of syncretism of course there's a lot of uh, going back to uh, sorcery going back to witchcraft and when things get tough uh, you know they would uh, they would go back to to witchcraft And there's a a strong movement for the, they call it Église de Noir, the Church of the Blacks. So it's exclusively going back to their traditional black uh, sorcery heritage, uh, as opposed to the Christianity that is, is universal. It's seeking their own heritage. But so, so they, they do things like they drink palm wine and they eat cola nuts, but but it doesn't bring any positive change to, to the culture. It's mm-hmm. it's it's going back to things that the ancestors did, but but there was no development, there was no change
4: mm-hmm.
3: back back in those days. So sorcery sorcery brings brings destruction. It it may favor individual interests, but it doesn't in favor community interests. And doesn't bring about positive change that Christianity brings about. Mm-hmm. Christianity brings unity uh, and it, it builds community and it, it brings solutions to the needs, like brings in hospitals and, and schools uh, and uh, and employment and development. Uh, whereas the sorcery that they're going back to doesn't bring any positive change; it just brings destruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of the, the context and, and other influences that are that are, are coming upon uh, the church there in Congo.
0: Yeah. Well, Glenn, we we greatly appreciate your service um, over there as well, um, as a, a missionary and teacher and and serving that community. Uh uh-huh. If you could Thanks. go back and maybe speak into somebody who is at the beginning of their journey and maybe even speak into your own life at the beginning of your journey, would there be something you'd like to say as a, an encouragement and maybe something that you can in hindsight see, or maybe that you've learned that you'd like to pass on? Uh huh. Um,
3: there's always room for missions. Um, when we left our home at Kikongo, my wife and I were the last missionaries. After 90 years of of a continuous missionary presence, we're, we're kind of the last. And, and I feel like there is still room for Western missionaries in an African context. Um, Western missionaries can provide uh, a much-needed perspective Um and can provide uh, technical training to a, an environment that is very low tech. And so, what iTech is doing, you know, introducing, uh, say, drone technology to help with medical—that's uh, that's a that's a needed technology. And uh, and I think that even as pastors, we still need in Africa. Western missionaries to bring a little bit different context to to, to missions, um, and so the my thinking is that the day of missions is not over, even though we're seeing a decline of Western missionaries. We still need uh, that that contact. The, the Congolese need to realize that they're not alone in in, in missions, in the church, in, in Christianity. That that um, that there are brothers and sisters out there that, that care uh, about them and can come alongside and, and bring support. Um, and so I would just like to encourage a, a young generation that, hey, there's still the need for missions. And uh, m- missions is, it's not focusing on, on one aspect. It's not just evangelism. It's not just pastoral training, but Missions is is holistic. It's ministering to to the whole person, and so we were doing, you know, besides sem- besides training pastors, we were involved in medical work, and and we were involved in agricultural work, planting lots of different fruit trees, and we were involved in the environment and helping people to realize the need for uh, protection of the environment and, and management. Uh, of the environment, we're involved in construction, and so uh, for any young person out there that is kind of a, a jack of all trades that wants to do something that's uh, where you're benefiting, you're helping humanity. Uh, missions is is uh, is a good it's a good career choice, and and you can do so many different things uh, uh, in missions. Um, if I were to start over again. Um, I I don't know. I would just maintain that focus on the Lord and trying to be open to what the Lord uh, wants to do in missions and not necessarily what an individual wants to do, but open to the, 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 the indigenous context of missions, trying to meet their needs uh, rather than trying to bring a missionary agenda to, to missions. I think the mistake that a lot of Western missionaries make is trying to bring a, bring a Western agenda to, to missions. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think for us, missions has been about listening to what the Congolese uh, need and trying to address their needs, trying to address their fears, their concerns, and to make Christianity relevant to an African context and not transplanting an American church to, to Africa, but, but really encouraging and fostering an Africanized version of, of Christianity. And, and I think that um, I, I would hope that looking back, that's what we tried to do is, is uh, encouraging an Africanized version of Christianity and not a Western version uh, of Christianity. So just being sensitive to the needs of those around us, rather than trying to impose a missionary agenda, I think was really important to us in ministry.
0: And I would assume that took a lot of time to build the relationships and the opportunity to be able to listen. Uh, It probably didn't happen right away.
3: Yeah, well, I had an advantage because having grown up there, I already had relationships with, with the people. And we we're going back to to friends that I had known from from childhood, mm. uh, and so I think the more that that you're you're with the culture, you feel their you feel their needs, and uh, and and you address their needs. So in the context that that my that Rita and I have been in this last three years, we haven't had other Western missionaries around us. It's just been us and and the culture, those are our colleagues that we're working with. So, yeah, you, you live that, that sensitivity to the needs that are around you. You see you're aware much more of the, the suffering uh, and uh, of, of the questions that they're asking um, um, by, by living in a, in a rural context with the Congolese, with the indigenous people. That was kind of our privilege this past few years has been just being the only being the only Westerners with the Congolese and living with them in, in their context. That's great. Yeah.
0: Well, Glenn, we greatly appreciate the opportunity to be able to chat with you today.
3: Yeah. Thanks for having me. I uh, hope I can get back to ITEC sometime. Uh, ITEC has been so Special to my, to our ministry of, of, of flying the powered parachute. Uh, I just appreciated so much, uh, uh, Steve, getting us together with Troy, and, and the impact that Troy and and Itech has had on, on my life. And we're hoping to walk his trails, just like uh, Itech has been involved in walking, walking his trails. Amen.
0: Thanks for joining us today, Glenn.
3: Yeah, thanks, Jim and Mitch. It's good
2: to talk to you. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Mission Minded. For more information on today's topic and show notes, please visit our website, itechusa.org. Mission Minded podcast is produced by iTech. The goal of this podcast is to inspire conversations about Great Commission participation. The views, organizations, and individuals represented, interviewed, and discussed on the podcast do not necessarily represent an official position or formal partnerships with ITEC.